Friends, so far in our sermon series from the prophet Daniel, we've explored stories of God's miraculous rescue of Daniel and his three Hebrew companions when they were living as exiles in Babylon, as well as visions that Daniel interpreted for both Babylonian and Persian monarchs. In today's text, God gives Daniel an amazing vision himself. For Christians, it has special value because Daniel speaks of a figure he calls the Son of Man, or a human being, a title Jesus uses for himself in the Gospels 65 times. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the title Son of Man is never used about Jesus by one of his followers, except for the time when Stephen does so just before an angry mob stones him to death. So in today's text, we see a direct connection between the book of Daniel and Jesus' own self-understanding. Daniel's vision in chapter 7 relates back to what we discovered about a month ago when we examined chapter 2 concerning God's kingly reign, which in future will supersede all earthly kingdoms and shall stand forever. Now today's passage, if you're familiar with the revelation of John in the New Testament, will remind you of that document because both of those great books fall into the category of apocalyptic literature. Both overflow with symbolism to encourage God's people during times of persecution, and both have a future focus about the unfolding of God's divine plan. Now let me describe what happens early in Daniel chapter 7. His vision begins when he sees and describes four beasts, really like sea monsters, that emerge out of the sea. And the sea for ancient Hebrews often represents chaos. I think it does here. Each of these four beasts is dangerous and possesses deadly power. The first was a ferocious lion, an animal known, of course, for its great power and strength, but it also had wings like an eagle which suggests it had speed and was ravenous. The second beast was bear-like with three tusks though protruding from its mouth. Beast number three was leopard-like with four wings and four heads. You can see how bizarre this imagery is. It's just quite bizarre. It'd be very interesting to try to paint this. The fourth beast is a bit mysterious because the fourth beast is not fully described except to be described as terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth with which to devour its prey, and with its feet, it, it broke its bodies into its victims' bodies into small pieces. Now, this beast had ten horns, but suddenly a tiny new horn appeared, and to make room for it, three others were pulled out by their roots. This new horn had eyes and a mouth which, with which to make arrogant boasts. So this is really quite a bizarre picture. Now, Jewish and Christian commentators have struggled for millennia to identify each of the four beasts along with the small horn. Countless efforts have been made to identify which kings or which empires each might represent. And there's no absolutely single scholarly consensus. However, many think that the first is King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian Empire. Well, the fourth beast is the Greek Empire built by Alexander the Great, 
while the little horn is a symbol for one of Alexander's successors, Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV. A tyrant, he tried to destroy Judaism in the second century before Christ by uttering blasphemies against God, persecuting Jewish believers, defiling the Jerusalem temple, suspending sacrifices, and abolishing the law of God. Now, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7, Daniel is given this vision of God who sits on his throne, surrounded by countless attendants. And that's the part of this chapter we want to focus on. So with that introduction, let's hear our text from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 18, and then verse 27 from the Revised Standard Version translation as Barb Lawson reads it for us. Daniel 7, 9 to 18 and 27. As I looked, thrones were placed and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words which the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings, who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. The word of the Lord. God appears in this text as the Ancient of Days, whose clothing is dazzling white and whose hair is like pure wool. Flames surround his throne and a stream of fire issues from God's presence. Multitudes, countless multitudes, attend the Almighty as God sits in judgment. And one of the first things we hear is that the small horn 
continued to spew out his arrogant words until he is put to death, destroyed by fire. And then in verses 13 and 14, Daniel saw, quote, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, meaning a, a, a human person. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Within the book of Daniel, the son of man figure, this is complicated, sometimes appears as an individual. For example, in these verses that I just read, a heavenly figure who comes as God's surrogate to represent God in judging humankind and establishing God's kingdom on earth. But other times, the Son of Man appears in Daniel as a corporate image for the Hebrews living in exile in Babylon who remain faithful to God. For example, in verses 18 and 27 of what the text that Barb just read for us. Whereas earlier the Son of Man as an individual receives this kingdom in those verses, those who receive and possess God's kingdom are, quote, the people of the saints of the Most High or the holy ones of the Most High. That is, they're the faithful believers. So sometimes the Son of Man is that individual. Sometimes it's the group of faithful followers. Jesus' own self-understanding is that he fulfills the role or will fulfill the role of the Son of Man at the end of time, and as such in future, will return as God's appointed judge to inaugurate God's kingly reign at the end of time. Jesus quotes this very passage from Daniel 7 and references himself as the Son of Man when standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, uh, the night before his execution. Caiaphas, you remember, the high priest, asks Jesus whether he is the Messiah. And according to Mark and Matthew, Jesus confirms that he is the, indeed the Messiah and then adds, this is the Mark and account, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, friends, is warning the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, today I'm standing trial before you. However, the day will come when you, my judges, will stand trial before me. When is the heavenly Son of Man at the final judgment? I fulfill the role of God's appointed judge. A famous federal judge in the first half of the 20th century was Kenesaw Mountain Landis, who eventually became the first commissioner of Major League Baseball. As a federal judge, Landis was not known for his leniency. He once sentenced a bank robber to 15 years in prison, and when sentenced, the aged robber pled for mercy. But, Your Honor, I'm 72 years old. I can't serve that long. Landis replied simply, Do the best you can. <laughs> As the Son of Man and our future judge, Jesus will not be anything like Judge Landis. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners who associated with and graciously accepted tax collectors and notorious sinners. For example, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of Jericho, who was both a religious and a social outcast. The one time in the Gospels that Jesus was forced 
to fulfill the role of judge in his ministry was when the bloodthirsty mob brought the woman caught in the very act of adultery and threw her at Jesus' feet. You remember that story from John chapter 7 and, and early 8. They reminded Jesus that the law of Moses said that such persons should be stoned. And then they demanded Jesus render his verdict about the woman. Should we stone her or should we not? Now, instead of simply allowing the woman's execution, Jesus cleverly asked those present to first examine themselves and then required that the person who began the stoning must be without sin. And when they all realized that they didn't qualify and had left the scene, Jesus said to the woman, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Go your way and do not sin again. So Jesus intervened to rescue and forgive this woman caught in the very act of adultery. He is one who entered human history as the embodiment of God's love and grace for us and for all humankind, and who lovingly offered his life for ours on the cross to free us from sin and death. I like very much question 52 in the 16th century Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, how does Christ return to quote, judge the living and the dead, comfort you? And here's the answer. In all my distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and has removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself in the joy and glory of heaven. Now in Mark's gospel, before Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi in chapter eight, Jesus spoke of himself only as the earthly son of man on a number of occasions. But after Peter's declaration that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, Jesus taught that as the Son of Man, he must first suffer and die, and afterwards return as the heavenly Son of Man to judge and rule over God's kingdom. Now, when we try to understand Jesus' own messianic self-understanding, I think he combines the Son of Man figure in the book of Daniel with the suffering servant of God figure in the prophet Isaiah. One example. The most vivid statement about Jesus' death and its meaning in Mark's gospel is found at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus told his followers, the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a clear allusion here, friends, to the suffering servant of God figure in Isaiah the prophet. The idea of ransom alludes to the offering for sin mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53 with the wider meaning of a substitutionary offering, an atonement offering. And the phrase that Jesus came to give his life for many actually means all, as it echoes the repeated use of the word many in Isaiah chapter 53 as well in speaking about the suffering servant of God. Now, why did Jesus so often call himself the Son of Man, using that rather nebulous term, not usually associated with the Messiah. 
New Testament scholar George Ladd writes, Jesus called himself the Son of Man because this title made an exalted claim and yet at the same time permitted Jesus to fill the term with new meaning, coupling the role of the Son of Man with that of the suffering servant. He was first to suffer and die, and then he would come in glory, according to Daniel chapter 7, to inaugurate the kingdom of God with power and glory. By the term Son of Man, Jesus laid claim to heavenly dignity and probably pre-existence itself and claimed to be the one who would one day inaugurate the glorious kingdom. But in order to accomplish this, the Son of Man must become the suffering servant and submit to death. Now, Jesus reminds us of his role as the Son of Man when it in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus claimed, Those who were ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So friends, what do our lives reveal about our loyalty or our disloyalty to both Jesus and his teaching? Are we people who publicly confess Christ and gladly bear witness to him with both our deeds and our words? Or do we deny Jesus and his teaching by what we say and do? Notice also that the saints or the holy ones of the Most High will gain possession of God's everlasting kingdom. This means that in some mysterious way, we will share in God's kingly reign at the end of time. Daniel 7.27 reads, The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom, that's our kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. This is the promise, friends, that we share somehow in God's reign. And it reminds me that in the last chapter of the Revelation to John, we read of the New Jerusalem, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see God's face and God's name will be on their foreheads, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, that is our amazing calling in Christ, to share God's reign in God's eternal kingdom. That is our hope. Amen.